Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to Strength in Depth. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Strength in Depth, a 200% podcast. This is a history of non-league football, from the time when all football was non-league to the present day, when the top end of the non-league game is practically indistinguishable from the lower reaches of the football league. This is a love story, the story of a part of the game which is kept alive by the dedication of those who will not see it die. But it's also a story of corruption, greed and exclusion, and of clubs that live hand-to-mouth existences without such luxuries as fat television contracts and exorbitant season ticket prices to fall back upon. In September 1888, the Football League, the first football competition of its type in the world, played its first fixtures. But throughout the first years of its existence, it wasn't the only show in town. As rivals came and fell, and the amateurs who had been controlling the game since its codification started to fade in importance, the Football League became the preeminent professional league. The Football League held its first round of fixtures on the 8th of September 1888. Twelve clubs from the Midlands and the north of England had been invited to join the competition at the request of William McGregor, the secretary of Aston Villa. But very quickly it became clear that the popularity of the game meant that these twelve wouldn't be the only clubs wanting this sort of regular competition. The selection of clubs to join the Football League in the first place hadn't been universally popular. McGregor had decreed that, initially at least, no more than one club per city should be represented, and that each city should represent a population of at least 60,000 people. The first of these was contentious, to say the least. McGregor's own Aston Villa was selected from Birmingham with no one else getting a look in, whilst elsewhere, well-established clubs such as Nottingham Forest were completely overlooked, whilst even Sheffield, which could stake a claim for being the true birthplace of the association game, didn't have a representative. The Football League had arrived, but it was widely felt that there was room for more. A group representing those aggrieved clubs who didn't make the cut for McGregor's League met shortly afterwards to discuss forming a rival competition. Initiated by the Crew Alexandra secretary J.G. Hall, the football combination was announced at the Royal Hotel in Crewe to begin later in 1888. Comprising 20 teams, there were to be 16 games per club to be arranged amongst themselves. Amongst those represented were Newton Heath, who would go on to rename themselves Manchester United, Small Heath, 
who would become Birmingham City, and South Shore, who would be merged into Blackpool FC before the end of the century. The Football League had quickly proved itself to be a success, even though it had started with some teething issues. The small matter of determining how points were to be awarded, for example, was not resolved until three months into its first season. By contrast, though, the combination was an organisational shambles. There were too many teams for them all to play each other once, let alone twice, so instead each club would play eight others home and away, making 16 games in total. However, unlike the league, the combination's fixtures were not centrally organised, but left to individual clubs. The upshot of this was complete confusion, as it was frequently not even clear whether many matches between clubs were friendlies or combination matches. Many fixtures were left unfilled, and the football combination was wound up in April 1889. The league re-emerged a year later, with a considerably more manageable 12 clubs, and would continue until 1911, by which time the landscape of the entire game was very different to what it had been like in 1890. In 1911, the remaining clubs in the combination would change its name to the Cheshire County League, and this in turn would become part of the Northwest Counties League, which continues to exist to this day. Posing a considerably greater challenge to the Football League in those very early years was the Football Alliance. After the demise of the original combination, its member clubs continued to look for a means of ensuring their survival, so the Football Alliance was formed to start in September 1889. The Alliance had learned from the mistakes that the combination had made. It was made up of 12 clubs who would pay each other twice a season. This adherence to the successful format used by the Football League would cement its success. Its first champions, the Wednesday, reached the 1890 FA Cup final before losing to Blackburn Rovers, while several players from the league were called up to play for the England national team. The Football Alliance quickly became a feeder league for the Football League. The Football League required its bottom clubs to be re-elected at the end of each season, and in 1890 Stoke were voted out. They joined the Football Alliance, won it in 1891, and were quickly voted back into the Football League. Curiously, the top two clubs from the Alliance's first season, the Wednesday and Bootle, occupied its bottom two places at the end of its second season. The third season of the Football Alliance was won by Nottingham Forest, with Newton Heath in second place. Forest also reached the semi-finals of the FA Cup, only losing to Football League club West Bromwich Albion after two replays. At a meeting held in Birmingham on the 23rd of March 1892 though, it was decided to formally merge the two leagues. And so the Football League second division was formed, consisting mostly of former alliance clubs. Three clubs, Nottingham Forest, The Wednesday and Newton Heath, were placed into the first division, with the remainder going into the second division. Of the three, only Newton Heath struggled, finishing second from bottom in the table. Even they, however, remained a first division club, after beating second division champion Small Heath in a test match to decide who would play first division football the following season.
all these new competitions, however, remain based in the Midlands and the north of England. So what of London and the south? It wasn't as though the association game was an alien concept in the southern half of the country. The Football Association itself had been founded after meetings in London with several local clubs amongst their number and the capital had also played host to international matches as well as the FA Cup final. London's oldest club, Cray Wanderers, had been formed in 1860. The issue was county football associations, which remained implacably amateur and didn't want anything to do with this unseemly professional nonsense. Woolwich Arsenal were the first club in London to turn professional in 1891, and were one of the prime motivators behind an attempt to set up a Southern League to mirror the existing Northern and Midlands-based Football League. However, this venture failed in the face of opposition from the London Football Association, and Woolwich Arsenal instead joined the Football League as its only representative south of Birmingham in 1893. Additionally, an amateur league, the Southern Alliance, was founded in 1892, with seven clubs from the region, but this folded after one incomplete season. The idea of a league for the south of England refused to die though, and in 1894 the idea resurfaced, this time under the stewardship of the London club Millwall Athletic. Their plan was originally for one division, but such was the interest in the new league that it started with two, one of nine clubs and one of seven. Amongst its founder members, as well as Millwall, were Luton Town, Swindon Town and Reading. The Southern League was an almost immediate success, and by the end of the 1890s it was challenging the Football League for popularity in the south of England. A preview of the 1900-01 season in the Daily News described the league as, now without a doubt, second only importance and strength of its clubs to the Football League itself. With the exception of Woolwich Arsenal, who prefer to remain members of the second division of the Football League, all the best professional teams in the South are now enrolled in the ranks of the Southern League. Two Southern League clubs, Southampton in 1900 and 1902, and Tottenham Hotspur in 1901, reached the final of the FA Cup at the beginning of the 20th century. Tottenham Hotspur remained the only club from outside the Football League or Premier League to have won the competition. There came another high-profile boost for the Southern League in 1898. That year, a shield was offered by Sir Thomas Dewar, the Sheriff of London at the time, with the understanding that it would pit the best professional side and amateur side against each other, with the proceeds of the match going to charity. Out of the six meetings the respective league champions had in this new match, however, only one was won by the Southern League champions, Brighton and Hove Albion, in 1910. By then, though, the Sheriff of London's Charity Shield had been superseded by the FA Charity Shield, thanks in no small part to a schism that might have torn the entire game completely in two. The decision to play this annual match between a professional club and an amateur club 
may well have been taken with one eye on events that had been taking place elsewhere. In 1871, English clubs playing the version of football played at rugby school, which had broken from the FA after 1863, met to form the Rugby Football Union. Many new rugby clubs were formed, and it was in the northern English counties of Lancashire and Yorkshire that the game really took hold. In this part of the country, rugby was largely a working-class game, whilst the southeastern clubs were largely middle-class. The strength of support for rugby grew over the following years, and large-paying crowds were attracted to major matches, which became major events. The players, however, didn't see much financial benefit from this. Even after the FA legalised professionalism in the association game in 1885, the Rugby Football Union pointedly didn't follow suit. Predominantly working-class teams found it difficult to play to their full potential, because in many cases their time to play and to train were limited by the need to earn a living, whilst working-class players were also limited in that they had to be careful how they played this extremely physical game. If injured, they had to pay their own medical bills and possibly take time off work which for many working-class players could easily lead to financial hardship. In 1892, charges of professionalism were laid against rugby football clubs in Bradford and Leeds, after they compensated players for missing work. And the following year, Yorkshire clubs complained that southern clubs were overrepresented on the Rugby Football Union Committee, with committee meetings which were being held in London at times that made it difficult for northern members to attend. The implied argument was that this affected the RFU's decisions on the issue of broken time payments to the detriment of northern clubs. The severity of the punishments for broken time payments and their widespread application to northern clubs and players made what happened next almost inevitable. On the 27th of August 1895, as a result of an emergency meeting held in Manchester, nine prominent Lancashire clubs declared that they would support their Yorkshire colleagues in their proposal to form a Northern Union. Two days later, representatives of 22 clubs met in the George Hotel Huddersfield to form the Northern Rugby Football Union. The rugby union authorities took drastic action, issuing sanctions against clubs, players and officials involved in the new organisation. Consequently, Northern clubs that existed purely for social and recreational rugby began to affiliate to the Northern Union, whilst retaining amateur status. By 1904, the new body had more clubs affiliated to it than the RFU. The separate Lancashire and Yorkshire competitions of the NRFU merged in 1901, forming the Northern Rugby Football League. In 1907, there would be rule changes in place that would result in rugby football effectively becoming two different sports. The divide between amateurism and professionalism had almost cleaved the association game apart in 1884, when the British Football Association had briefly been formed between 37 clubs from the Midlands and North, with the FA at that time still refusing to sanction professionalism. The threat had been inverted when the FA allowed it the following year, but tensions remained. The FA remained governed by the universities, the private schools and the services. They were, despite the FA's 1885 decision over allowing professionalism, 
still bastions of amateurism. Largely independently wealthy, or with jobs that allowed for time away from work, they could afford to be. The form of professionalism that the FA did allow was hardly free market capitalism either. Throughout the early years of the game, most players were only part-time professionals and still held other jobs. These players did not receive as much as £4 a week and therefore a maximum wage that high did not greatly concern them. A minority of players though were able to obtain as much as £10 a week. The proposal for a maximum wage posed a serious threat to their income and they unionised. But at the Football League's AGM of 1901, the maximum wage of professional footballers playing in the Football League was set at £4 a week anyway. This was double what a skilled tradesman received at the time and would remain pegged to roughly this level until its abolition seven decades later. On top of this, the league also voted to outlaw match bonuses. To encourage players to play for clubs for some time, they were to be awarded a benefit match after five years. It was claimed at the time that this was an attempt to curb the power of the wealthier clubs. The Southern League, the largest professional league apart from the Football League, took full advantage of this new rule change. Many higher-earning players decided to join Southern League clubs, where there were no restrictions on what they could earn. For their part, Southern League clubs began enticing Football League stars to defect with promises of signing on fees of up to £100, almost half a year's salary, on the Football League's maximum wage. The amateurs, meanwhile, were aghast. Professionalism, they believed, would encourage gambling, partisanship and the will to win at all costs. It could turn what they believed should have been a source of pleasure and moral virtue into a mere job of work, and by leaving the professional sportsman with too much time on his hands could render him a highly unsuitable role model for the young working classes. The FA had set up the FA Amateur Cup for the start of the 1893-94 season as a sop to them. There was no way that any amateur clubs were getting to Wembley in an FA Cup final again. But by the time of the introduction of the maximum wage, it was already felt that the true control of the game's destiny was rapidly slipping away from the amateurs. Trouble, therefore, was brewing. On the 12th of October 1901, an article appeared in a newspaper headed Amateur Clubs and the English Cup, which began, It has been said that amateur football is in the decline, that it is not what it was, and that its ultimate insignificance is, in fact, merely a matter of time. This article, and others like it in publications such as the still influential weekly sports newspaper The Athletic News, which had, somewhat ironically, been an advocate of professional football when that debate was raging a couple of decades earlier, reflected the growing impression that amateur football was doomed. The old boys teams that had dominated the FA Cup throughout its first decade withdrew the following year in favour of the Arthur Dunn Memorial Cup, which is still played to this day. Still though, amateur clubs that didn't want to make this move needed leagues to play in. 
and one was set up in the northeast of England in 1899 called the Northern League, which was a combination of professional clubs and amateur clubs to start with. In 1905, the league was split into two divisions, one professionals and one for amateurs. But the professional league was abandoned the following year, and the Northern League would remain an amateur league until the Football Association did away with the formal distinction between amateur and professional players in 1974. Also, amateur clubs in the south of England finally formed a league of their own when representatives of six clubs, Casuals, Civil Service, Clapton, Ealing Association, Ilford and London Caledonians met in London to discuss the creation of a strong amateur league. All of the clubs supported the idea, so the Isthmian League was born on the 8th of March 1905. Its name, probably taken from the Isthmian Games, one of the Panhellenic Games of ancient Greece, or from the fact that its clubs formed an isthmus shape around central London, was a reflection of the classical education of its founders. Membership to the league was through invitation only, and the league was strongly dedicated to amateurism, to the extent that the champions did not even receive a trophy or medals. The league's motto was Honor Sufficit. Still though, tensions between the amateurs and the rest continued to rise, and this led to the forming of the slightly hysterically named Amateur Football Defence Council. The organisation was formed in May 1906, following unanimous agreement at a meeting of around 100 clubs from the London metropolitan area. In September 1906, the AFDC warned the London FA that its clubs would be boycotting the London Senior Cup the following season. Later that month, the organisation was renamed the Amateur Football Defence Federation. Following the general meeting of the Football Association on the 31st of May 1907, it was decided by the Federation that in the best interest of amateur football, a new and separate organisation must be created. The inaugural meeting of the Amateur Football Association was held in the Crown Room of the Holborn Restaurant on the 7th of July 1907. All present were addressed by Alfred Littleton MP, before B.A. Glanville of Clapham Rovers proposed the formation of the association, which was seconded by N.C. Bailey. It was stated that the foundation of the association wasn't in opposition to professionalism in sport, but instead to the fungus growth which had become attached to the machinery of football management. Lord Alveston was elected as the first president of the new society, and the Corinthians offered to provide a trophy for a new cup competition. The existing Federation Committee was elected to the new organisation. The Football Association responded by banning amateur clubs from playing for professional clubs, and resulted in the end of the Sheriff of London Charity Shield after the FA refused to provide a professional team for the match, and barred all its members from either playing or providing facilities. The first FA Charity Shield, played between the Football League First Division champions Manchester United and the Southern League champions Queen's Park Rangers, was played in 1908, with Manchester United winning after a replay. It remains the only charity or community shield ever to have been taken to a replay. A later resolution by the FA 
meant that any player who played for his school, college or university team, which was a member of the Amateur Football Association, was not banned from playing for a professional team. Furthermore, the FA asked the Scottish, Welsh and Irish football associations to not recognise the formation of the AFA. A number of teams were formed to choose between one association and the other. Cambridge University pledged their allegiance to the AFA, and in response, so did Oxford University, although they would have preferred to remain neutral between the two. Both the Leicestershire and Essex football associations were early supporters of the actions of the football association against the AFA. Meanwhile, both the Army and Royal Navy football association took the question of which association to support by holding a vote of its member clubs. This resulted in both remaining with the Football Association. This schism lasted until 1914, when the FA agreed to allow the AFA to remain its amateur policy. The AFA, Oxford, Cambridge and the public schools would each nominate one member of the FA Council, with the AFA also represented on the National Team Selection Committee and the Amateur Cup Committee. A maximum of 12 clubs per year, with a maximum of four from any one county, could join the AFA. Throughout the first decade of the new century, the Southern League had flourished. Several of the best players in England moved from the Football League to the Southern League around this time, due to the maximum wage and restrictions on their freedom of movement and wages, as well as the failed efforts of the Association Footballers' Union, the first professional footballers' trade union, to relax these restrictions. It also spread its sphere of influence beyond the south of England, allowing Bradford Park Avenue to join in 1907 upon that club's breakaway from the Bradford Rugby Football Club as well as the former Football League members Staleybridge Celtic and Stoke, the latter of whom went bankrupt in 1908 and resigned their place in the Football League, only to change their minds, but not have this accepted by the Football League. The truce between the Southern League and the Football League that was agreed in 1910 ended 16 years of hostility between the two bodies. By the end of the decade, Tensions had risen to such a point that Southern League clubs weren't even applying to join the Football League anymore. The Southern League proposed a merger to the Football League in 1907, which was rejected. They suggested the idea again the following year, and a majority of Football League clubs voted in favour, but they didn't reach the required three-quarter majority to get it implemented. A third unsuccessful attempt was made in 1911. The amateurs would, however, come to dominate football at the Olympic Games. For the 1908 Olympics in London, the FA persuaded the IOC to include an official football tournament, which they in turn organised. A team, made up entirely of English players, was entered, and although it competed as the United Kingdom and was listed as such, the official match reports frequently referred to the English team. In a move that would come to mirror more recent controversies surrounding a British Olympic football team, the Scottish Football Association passed a resolution to protest against one national body in the British Isles being termed the United Kingdom, 
or playing as such without the consent of the other three national associations. The resolution was read at the next meeting of the International Football Association Board. In response, it was confirmed that this was the name given by the authorities and that so far as the Football Association was concerned, they had nothing to do with the matter. The Scottish Football Association was satisfied with this answer. At the 1908 Olympics, with all matches being played at the vast new White City Stadium in West London, Great Britain and Ireland won all three of their matches, defeating Sweden and the Netherlands in the first two rounds. They met Denmark in the final, defeating them 2-0, with goals from Vivian Woodward and Frederick Chapman. Britain's top scorer was Harry Stapley of Glossop, who scored six goals, including all four in their 4-0 semi-final defeat of the Netherlands. He, however, wasn't the tournament's top scorer. That honour went to Denmark's Sophus Nielsen, who scored 11 goals in the tournament. He became the first international player ever to score 10 goals in one match in his team's 17-1 semi-final win against France. The GB team repeated this success in the 1912 games. Again, Britain won all three matches and defeated Denmark in the final, this time by four goals to two. Woodward, who'd scored in the previous final, was captain for this tournament. These teams might have been amateur, but they weren't non-league. Fewer than half of the squad for the 1908 Olympic teams were not playing in the Football League at the time. Such was the influence of the amateur game that many ostensibly professional clubs would have amateurs on their books. Britain would claim one more gold medal in Antwerp in 1920 before fading from view. The outbreak of war in August 1914 brought the whole of football into a quandary. The Football League had been going for 25 years, but this was uncharted territory. Most amateur football closed down immediately, including the Isthmian League, but the Football League played on, to growing criticism in the press as the 1914-15 season wore on. And as a professional league, the Southern League continued as well. The league played out its entire fixture list, with Watford winning the league title by three points from Reading. But by the end of the season, it was clear that the game couldn't go on in any meaningful sense. The Football League had ultimately sidestepped much of the criticism of them by supporting the creation of a professional footballer's battalion to go and fight, which proved popular with both players and supporters. Amateur players were no less enthusiastic than their professional counterparts to go and fight as well. Charlton Athletic, who joined the Lewisham League upon moving from youth to senior football in 1913, disbanded at the start of 1915 because too many of the club's players had gone away to fight for them to be able to justify continuing. The club didn't reform until 1919. What's clear about this period in the history of the game is that the fault line that was most noticeable to people wasn't between league and non-league, but between the amateurs and the professionals. And the professionals were winning the argument. The fan culture that had grown since people first started turning up to watch matches in the 1860s was focused on winning, and the advantage to the professionals was clear. The amateurs, however, had been the first to properly codify the game, and still sat in positions of considerable influence, both within the Football Association and elsewhere. 
they considered the game to be theirs, and that professionalism would spoil the ethos of the game that they had decided upon. It would take a long time for them to disappear completely, but their influence was already on the wane by the time that war broke out in 1914. They still had influence, though. In 1910, the amateur side Corinthians, famed for their ethos of sportsmanship, fair play and playing for the love of the game, as well as for their love of touring the world, travelled to Brazil, and five local railway workers in Sao Paulo set up the sport club Corinthians Paulista after they left. Corinthians remain one of South America's most successful club sides to this day. The English amateurs of Corinthians returned to Brazil at the start of August 1914 for another tour, but had to leave almost as soon as they arrived because of the outbreak of war. None of those who travelled would ever play for Corinthians again. The First World War would change the face of Britain forever in a broader sense too though, and within a couple of years of its end, that change had spread as far as football itself. For listening to this 200% podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Be good to each other and robots.